Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on the show, Harvard professor and astrophysicist, Avi Loeb. You know, the frontier of physics is extra dimensions. The frontier of physics is string theory. But these are concepts for which there is no experimental evidence. And they have been working on these for several decades. If that is the mainstream for which awards are given, for which you can get a job, then something is distorted in the scientific culture because there is a significant component of the theoretical physics community working on things that the public doesn't really understand, that have no connection to reality because they were never tested, whereas the same mainstream community is dismissing a subject that is of interest to the public and on which we can get data. Something is unhealthy in the current culture of theoretical physics. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome, everyone, to Somewhere in the Skies. And uh, today we are joined by Professor Avi Loeb. Avi received a PhD in plasma physics at age 24 from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and was subsequently a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where he started to work in theoretical astrophysics. In 93, he moved to Harvard University as an assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy where he was tenured three years later. He was also a visiting professorship at the Wiseman Institute of Science and a Sackler Senior Professorship by special appointment in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Tel Aviv University. He is the founder of the Black Hole Institute, a member of many other organizations, has authored over 700 research articles and has written five books, uh, the newest of which is the focus of our discussion today. The book is Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And the author is Avi Loeb, and he is here with us today. Avi, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you for having me. The fact that I have you here with me today, Avi, uh, is a huge honor and pleasure. So I really had to roll out your resume there to uh, to show uh, my audience the depths we're going to go into in tonight's discussion. I should say that all these labels mean does do not mean much for me because um, you know what really matters to me is you know um, in science is curiosity and just like kids you know they don't have labels uh, they just try to learn about the world and that's what we are all doing you know and there was a, a, a an article in the Gazette the Harvard Gazette that I wrote where I was asked what is the one thing you would like to change about the world. And uh, I said, I, I just want my colleagues to behave more like kids. That's that's all I want. To 
I, I completely agree with you there. I think, you know, as we, as we age, we lose that inhibition, you know, that, or, uh, or we have that inhibition, I should say, and curiosity kind of takes a back seat. So it's good to see people like yourself out there uh, challenging the mainstream, challenging the norm, and theorizing, which is such an important part of science to begin with. Well, it's, it's uh, the unfortunate aspect of people uh, changing the pattern of their behavior from being kids to being adults is that, is that they are starting to care more about themselves you know, and, and about their ego. And in academia, you see that a lot. Uh, you know, professors, once they get tenure, they have students and postdocs that uh, are, be, behave as if they're in an echo chamber. They echo the, whatever the senior person says, and that amplifies the message. But this is, you know, chasing uh, awards and honors is really not what science is about. It's not about us. It's about understanding the world, nature. And uh, uh, that's what we do as kids. And I just refuse to change that attitude. And I don't really care about how many likes I have on Twitter and whether I get prizes and whether, uh, you know, the community around me uh, applaud, you know, or not. It doesn't really matter because what we are after is figuring out how the world works and You know, if you look at the history, you see situations like with Galileo, Galilei, who is a hero of science, you know, he argued that the earth mm -hmm. is moving around the sun. And uh, uh, the philosophers at the time said, no, we know the truth. Uh, the sun moves around the earth. And, you know, that's uh, consistent with our religion and everything. And uh, they put him in house arrest as a result. But that didn't change the fact that the earth moves around the sun, it only maintained their ignorance. So, you know, my view is that reality stays the same, irrespective of whether you ignore it or not. It's the one thing that persists. And uh, if we uh, ignore reality just because we are chasing our egos and, you know, trying to get honors and awards, that's the wrong approach for finding the truth. That's such a good point. The truth does not care about our feelings, right? I think is a good way to say it. Um, well, let's let's rewind just a little bit, Avi, if you don't mind. Um, could you tell us a little about how you first got involved and interested in astronomy, cosmology? What led you to where you are today, that burning curiosity? When did that all start for you? Well, it was purely by chance or circumstances, I should say, because I was born on a farm and then um, I used to collect eggs every afternoon and drive a tractor. And I was mostly interested in philosophy uh, because it addresses the most fundamental questions that we have. Unfortunately, it doesn't answer those questions. And then uh, I grew up in Israel and you have to serve in the military at age 18. It's obligatory. And I prefer to do um, intellectual work. The, the thing that is closest to pursuing philosophy. And so I was good in physics and they recruited me to an elite program that um, uses physics for the defense of the country. And uh, I finished my PhD at age 24, the first one in this program. And actually the project that I developed was the first international project funded by the Strategic Defense Initiative of, of Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s. And 
Uh, as a result, I came to the U.S. Uh, for visits because we were funded by the U.S. government. And the, in one of those visits, I visited the, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Albert Einstein was a professor uh, decades earlier, uh, because someone told me that it's a, a very interesting place to visit. Uh, and uh, I met a person named John Bacall that uh, gambled on me, offered me a five-year fellowship under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. So even though philosophy was my true love, I said, well, you know, that's an unusual opportunity. I should not give up on it. So I went into astrophysics, uh, had to learn all the vocabulary. I didn't know much. Uh, I didn't know how the sun shines. Let's put it this way. Uh, and so I learned it. Uh, and then Harvard University offered me an assistant professorship. Uh, nobody else wanted that position because the chance of getting tenured was very small. And so actually they chose someone else's number one. And that someone said, no, I don't want that job because I will not be promoted. Um, so they gave it to me. And, and then I was promoted three years later. And after that, uh, about um, a decade and a half later, I became the chair of that uh, department the longest serving chair, I should say, since 2011 until 2020, uh, last year. Um, and um, at that point, I realized, you know, that in fact, even though I had a, an arranged marriage uh, in, to astrophysics, uh, the, the, the person that I'm married to is actually my true love. Because in astrophysics, you have very fundamental questions, philosophical questions, that uh, we can address with scientific tools, such as, uh, you know, what is our origins? How did the universe begin? begin? Um, uh, and uh, are we alone? Is there life out there? You know, these are really fundamental questions that you can find uh, a discussion about in almost all religions. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, the Bible, the first chapter discusses these questions. Now we can address those questions with scientific tools. So I'm, I'm really happy to pursue astrophysics, even though I was forced into it by circumstances. <laughs> such is life. I completely understand that. Well, I mean, and you've come such a long way since then. Uh, you even started your own institute, which I'd love to talk to you about before we get to, you know, the, the elephant slash object in the room, Oumuamua. But before that, Avi... Um, the Black Hole Institute. Could you tell us a little about what this is and uh, why you decided to to found this institute? This is fascinating to me. Yeah, so this uh, Black Hole Initiative uh, started, uh, was uh, inaugurated in 2016. And the idea was uh, to establish a center that brings together physicists, mathematicians, astronomers, and philosophers that are all interested in black holes. Black holes are these extreme structures of space and time that they represent the ultimate prison. Even light cannot escape from them. And uh, Einstein wrote his uh, theory of gravity uh, in uh, November 1915, published it. And then a few months later, Carl Schwarzschild was the first to derive an analytic solution, a simple solution to those equations, and that was a black hole. And a uh, uh, hundred years later, the first direct evidence for a black hole came in the form of gravitational waves when two black holes collided at the edge of the universe and 
sent uh, ripples in space and time that our LIGO observatory detected, discovered, for which the Nobel Prize was awarded a couple of years later in physics. So uh, it's quite remarkable that only it took only a century between the idea of a black hole to when it was discovered. And that was just around the time when we established the Black Hole Initiative. We didn't know about the LIGO result when we decided to establish it, but then it came along. It was publicized around the same time. And uh, since then, I should say this year, the Nobel Prize was given again to the study of black holes. So we should have, in hindsight, uh, 2020 hindsight, and 2020 is also the year uh, when the Nobel Prize was awarded again uh, for black holes, we actually forecasted that it will become a major frontier in the study of the of the universe. And I should say that Einstein himself doubted that black holes exist in nature. In 1939, he wrote a paper saying, black holes are just mathematical constructs. They don't really exist in nature. Uh, and he was wrong on that. But this just illustrates that, you know, science is a learning experience. Even Einstein was wrong uh, actually three times late in his career. And it's a learning experience. When you work on the frontier, sometimes you make mistakes, you have to take risks. And as I said before, it's just like kids, you know, you stumble. Uh, and But through that process, you learn something new. And, you know, all these forces, all these people in academia that try to pretend as if they know everything or they want to protect their image by never being wrong, by never taking a risk, they're betraying the promise of science because they're not considering possibilities that might be true and revolutionary. And, uh, for example, the detection of gravitational waves from black hole collisions, that was a revolutionary concept. And a lot of people in the mainstream doubted that it's possible. Uh, But now we use it. So um, that's why I don't care about the number of likes I get on Twitter, because, you know, many of the people that pioneered things in science uh, were not particularly liked. Their ideas were not liked at the time when they proposed it. Absolutely. And um, we're going to get into sort of that uh, rebellious nature that I highly respect about the work you've done and and many other, you know, scientists in all different fields as well um, who aren't afraid to throw the darts at the wall and see what sticks, you know? I, sh- I should say one thing, though, uh, that uh, just before we inaugurated the Black Hole Initiative, about uh, four months before that, uh, actually half a year before that, I, I met uh, Stephen Hawking in London uh, at some event, and uh, his caretaker said, would you mind saying something to Stephen? He's bored. Would you mind speaking to him? And I went to Stephen and said... Um, because everyone around was not really a scientist. And so I went to him and said, look, we're about to inaugurate uh, the Black Hole Initiative. Black holes were the focus of his career. And I said, uh, we would love it if you were to come and visit us uh, for the inauguration. And uh, then I left because it took him a long time to respond and I was not patient enough to wait like 10 minutes for his response. So I thought, well, nothing will happen as a result. But then uh, a few months later, he uh, asked his doctor, to travel across the Atlantic for the first time in four years and come to the inauguration. The only problem was that this journey would cost uh, half a million dollars. But I found a way. There was a way to get that funding. And he came. 
And he actually visited my house uh, for Passover. He's not Jewish, but he came for that. And it was quite remarkable uh, to have him, to host him at our home. Wow. What a story that you'll always have to treasure. I mean, having Stephen Hawking in your home, I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, okay. So let's move to 2017. And this is when news broke of this object, Oumuamua. Um, and the whole world was talking about this, whether it was in the world of science or or religion, or um, us in the quote-unquote UFO world, UFO community, uh, and the possibility that, oh my gosh, this could be the first object to come into our solar system. So I guess, would you mind kind of walking us through those first moments, Avi, of when it was discovered? Um, you know, we, we heard about it later than when it was actually uh, first discovered. So could you kind of walk through the entire Oumuamua um, origin story, if you will? Yes. So it was spotted uh, on uh, October 19th, 2017, and uh, by a telescope in Hawaii uh, on Mount Haleakala uh, called Panstars. And because it was discovered in Hawaii, it was given uh, a name from the Hawaiian language that means a scout a messenger from far away. Uh, that's the origin of the name. Um, and it's because the object is the very first one that we spotted from outside the solar system. It was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. That was recognized immediately, that it's an interstellar object, an invader of the solar system. Uh, it was spotted only when it was moving away from us. If we would have detected it in July that year, uh, at that time it was moving towards us. As it turns out, I was uh, visiting that uh, mountain in Hawaii, uh, in Maui. We were on vacation with my family, and we went to. Uh, I went to give uh, a talk at that observatory, and uh, they gave us a tour of that site. So, if at that time we would have spotted it, then it would have been possible. Uh, to send a camera on a CubeSat uh, that will meet it halfway and take a photograph of it. But it, uh, since it was discovered only when it started uh, moving away from us, uh, it was too late. It's sort of like having a guest for dinner. And by the time you realize that the guest is strange or weird or interesting, it's already out of the front door into the dark street. That was the experience. Now, why was it strange? Um, at first, astronomers thought it's just like any other rock that we have seen before in the solar system. So most likely it's a comet. And then uh, the problem was that there was no cometary tail. There was no trail of gas behind it as a result of evaporation of uh, ice on its surface. Um, so then people said, oh, well, okay, so it's not a comet, but maybe it's just rock, just an asteroid. The problem with that was that it uh, showed an extra push um, in addition to the force of gravity coming from the sun. And such a push is given to comets from the rocket effect, from gases pushing them forward as the gas goes backwards, and just like in a jet plane. Um, so there is this extra push, but we don't see a cometary tail. So how, what gives it this extra push? The other peculiar fact was that 
as the object was tumbling, the brightness that we received from it uh, as a result of reflected sunlight changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that the area of the object on the sky was changing as it was spinning around, was changing by a factor of 10 every eight hours. And uh, that means that its geometry is very extreme because even if you take a, a razor thin piece of paper and you let it tumble in the wind, you don't see it edge on uh, uh, most of the time. And a factor of 10 change in the area of this piece of paper means that it really is quite flat and, and long. Um, now, the, the best fit to the amount of light that we received uh, as it was tumbling is that of a, uh, from a pancake shape, uh, from a flattened object, not from a cigar-shaped object as it was depicted in many cartoons. So we know that most likely it's a, it was a flat object that was pushed by some force. And, you know, we suggested in a paper that we wrote, in a scientific paper with uh, my postdoc Shmuel Biali, we suggested maybe it's the reflection of sunlight that pushed it. And for that, you need the object to be extremely thin, sort of like a sail uh, on a sailboat uh, that is pushed by wind, except here it's being pushed by the reflection of sunlight. And if that is the case, then it must be artificially produced because you don't get such objects uh, in nature. Um, and so the suggestion was that just like our civilization is developing light sails for space exploration. Uh, these are sails that are pushed by light where you don't need to carry the fuel with you in order to move the spacecraft. Uh, perhaps another civilization already mastered this technology and or maybe it's some, you know, uh, surface layer of a spacecraft that was torn apart and we, we it's just, uh, you know, very thin. I should say in September this year, uh, I mean, 2020, there was another object discovered that looked a bit strange in the sense that it, it also showed a push uh, by sunlight, uh, and uh, except that it was bound to the sun, uh, moving roughly at the orbit of the Earth. And so when astronomers uh, extrapolated back in time, they found that in 1966, it actually came from the Earth. And uh, then, of course, uh, they went to the history books and found there was actually a lunar lander called Surveyor 2, a mission that actually failed, but the rocket booster from that mission was kicked into space, and that is the object that was discovered. And that was a hollow, very thin object, and that's why it exhibited this push. So we can tell the difference between a rock uh, that cannot be pushed by sunlight because it's, uh, it's full. Uh, I mean, the area of, of its surface relative to its weight is not big enough. Uh, only for a very thin object, you can get a push. Uh, we can distinguish a rock from a hollow or a thin artificial object. In the case of this uh, rocket booster, it was made by us. In the case of Oumuamua, who knows? And who knows what the purpose was? So, you know, we just put this possibility on the table. And to me, the most surprising thing is we didn't arrange for any press release or going to the press. And then uh, there was a huge a viral response from the media. And at the same time, a big pushback from the scientific community. There is a taboo. You're not supposed to discuss an interpretation that relates some anomalies that you see 
to uh, intelligence, extraterrestrial intelligence. Right. And the question is why? To right. me, this, this is really um, unjustified, and I can explain why. Uh, uh, yeah, well, let's, let's discuss that. Now, you mentioned artificial and interstellar, so I think a lot of people's minds would naturally go to alien. And, of course, this is what the media is going to latch on to. Uh, this is what the, I would assume, mainstream scientific community would push against. So, I mean, I guess before we get into the possibilities of why this could be from a extraterrestrial intelligence, what was the reception when you first published this paper by your peers and, uh, you know, your colleagues? And overall, how did they respond to these these theories that you were bringing forth? Well, the strange thing is that the, the mainstream scientists came together and most of them said business as usual. Forget about it. They wrote a a big paper saying, you know, there are all these anomalies, but in principle, there might be a natural process that explains them. But then a few of the mainstream people tried to explain these anomalies. And they came up with something that we have never seen before. They said, oh, maybe it's a dust bunny, you know, a collection of dust particles, a very porous object that is sort of like a cloud, you know, very porous, a hundred times less dense than air, a cloud that is being pushed by sunlight. That was one proposal. The problem with that is such an object would not survive the journey, most likely. There was another proposal. Maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg. Uh, we've never seen such a thing. And in a paper that I wrote subsequently with a colleague of mine, Tim Huang, we showed that uh, such an iceberg would evaporate very quickly. It will not survive the journey as well. So you can... You can tell that people that thought about the anomalies and tried to explain them as a natural product of some natural process had a very difficult time doing that. And yet, the majority of people that didn't really look at the details were dismissing it and were ridiculing the actual possibility that it might be artificial. And, and that I find inappropriate and, and unhealthy. And I'll explain why. Because to me the existence of another civilization is not a speculation. We know that roughly half of the sun-like stars have a planet of the size of the Earth, roughly at the distance of the Earth from the sun, so that it can have liquid water on the surface and the chemistry of life as we know it. So there are billions of such Earth-Sun systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And what's, you know, if you arrange for the same circumstances, what's the chance that you will not get the same outcome? If you roll the dice billions of times, you know, you definitely should have a lot of, you know, systems in which you have life as we know it. Uh, I would find that to be the most conservative uh, assumption to say we are not special. We are very common. You know, when my daughters were young, uh, they thought that the world centers of them on them, that they are very unique and special. Then they went to the street and saw other kids. And uh, then as a result of that, they got a better perspective and matured. Many of my colleagues and our civilization is not mature yet. Many of the people think that we are unique and special. And uh, the only way to change that uh, mis misconception is to find evidence for others out there. And I, I, I not only believe that, that we are not alone, but I don't think that we are the sharpest cookie in the jar. 
that we are the smartest kid on the block. You know, the, we are probably typical and there are things that are much smarter than we are. Uh, because, you know, if you open the newspaper every morning, you, you know, humans may make a lot of mistakes. We waste a lot of time and, and energy and money fighting each other, doing things that are not necessarily for the better good of everyone. Uh, so we, we certainly do not behave as, as the smartest, you know, kid on the block. And, and, you know, if you just think about it, if you look at recipe books for, for cakes and you can see that out of the same ingredients, you can make very different cakes depending on how you mix them and uh, under which condition and what order and so forth. So what's the chance that if you take the soup of chemicals that was on earth, that by, by random processes made us, what's the chance that we are the, the, the best cake that you can imagine? Very small. So we are one of yeah. those typical cakes, you know, that are, Cakes that are much more intelligent, much, much better than us uh, in many respects, I'm sure. Uh, and we just need to find evidence for that. Now, of course, you can bury your head in the sand and say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to consider that possibility. That will only maintain your ignorance. But reality will not go away. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, we're so young as a species, as a planet. And I, I, I tend to agree with you that we base everything, oddly, it seems, in uh, the sort of mainstream perception of science on uh, our limitations here on our planet, our limitation of our own physics, our own uh, dynamics, our own science, where the possibilities are literally endless of what kind of life could be out there, how it originated, how it thrives, and how it survives. So right. I, I, I agree with you. It may be very different than we are. You know, when you go on a blind date, it's a fair assumption to assume that the person you would meet would not be very different from you because we share a common genetic uh, heritage, you know, all humans. Mm -hmm. But when you meet life from another place that had nothing in common with us, you know, it could be very different. And the technologies could be much more advanced than ours that they would look like magic for us. Uh, but the lesson from Oumuamua is similar to what I experience when I go on vacation on a beach. You know, most of the time I see seashells that uh, were swept ashore and each of them looks different and they were naturally produced. But every now and then I stumble across a plastic bottle that implies that there is a civilization out there that produced it. It's an artificially made object. And my point is, rather than just looking for radio signals from space, we might check objects that come to us from outside the solar system, and perhaps we'll find a message in a bottle. So the search for um, other civilizations could go in many different directions. Uh, it's possible that many of those uh, civilizations that uh, existed um, are not around anymore, that they are dead by now. But that doesn't mean that we cannot find evidence for their existence. Um, we could search just as we do uh, archaeology, where we dig into the ground and find evidence for civilizations that are not around anymore. Uh, we can mm -hmm. do the, the same thing in space, uh, you know, finding uh, planets with burned-up surfaces that where the civilization did not take good care of of its climate or 
or uh, went into a nuclear war. Or... So we can find artifacts that are left behind. We can find evidence for dead civilizations as well. And, and that would teach us an important lesson to behave better so that we will not share the same fate. Altogether, I think we can learn from the sky. Okay? If, if we see evidence for other civilizations out there, we can learn from them. Uh, if we see a technology that we can import to Earth, it, it would be huge. You know? It could be very uh, profitable. You know? Instead of going to Wall Street or the Silicon Valley, if you learn something from the sky, looking at the sky. What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you and keep looking up. 
humanity instead of being weaponized instead of being uh you know used for for bad or for destruction like you said a fate that we might have someday that another civilization had so um i, I guess kind of closing Yes, please, yeah, I, I should add to what you just said. Um, I, I participated okay. in a debate about um, uh, just a, a month and a half ago about the question of whether the space race between the U.S. and China is uh, good for humanity. And all of the debaters right. uh, were focusing on the military threat from space. So if there is this race between China and the U.S., you know, it, it brings the risk to national security and so forth. And I just couldn't understand it because space is all about going away from Earth in the third dimension. You know, uh, you don't just hover above the surface of the Earth. That's not where most of the space is. It's very far away. It's going to Mars. It's going to another star. And there is no military risk from that. If you go very far from Earth, you're not risking what's going on on Earth. And um, to me, it was very narrow-minded, the view to think about space as a military threat. You know, it's... Actually, it's the one thing that can unify us. You know, we can have an ambition going to space um, that will benefit the global economy. Uh, so rather than fighting among each other, space, I think, could be a unifier. Right. And that kind of connects to uh, my last question here in terms of um, what Oumuamua could represent and what these art- possible artificial objects could be coming into our solar system is techno signatures Avi, i know you've um you've done heavy research on this in the past as well um we covered this on a website i worked for called the debrief recently as well uh scientists uh, members of seti now working in this field of techno signatures so for any of our audience who might not be familiar with what this is could you maybe give us kind of the clip notes version of what techno signatures is in uh I guess, how it could benefit our search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, so let me give you an example that will illustrate the point. Uh, Astronomers are willing to uh, invest hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars in the next generation of uh, telescopes that would search for oxygen in the atmospheres of planets around other stars. Because the argument is that life uh, produces oxygen. That's a signature of life. Uh, The problem with that argument is that in the first 2 billion years of Earth, roughly half of of the life of of the Earth uh, was spent with the atmosphere having very little oxygen in it. Even though there was life on Earth in the first 2 billion years, the level of oxygen in the atmosphere was very low. So you can have life, microbial life, on a planet without oxygen in the atmosphere. We know it from Earth. Another point is that you can make oxygen by natural processes. You can break uh, water molecules and make oxygen. Uh, So it wouldn't be really conclusive. But the mainstream of astronomy is willing to invest a huge sum of money pursuing that signature. My point is simple. There is actually the same instruments can actually detect something that will tell you beyond any doubt that there is life. If they detect CFCs, these are molecules that indicate industrial pollution that we, for example, produce here on Earth. 
These CFCs are molecules produced by uh, refrigerating systems, by industries um, that deplete the ozone uh, layer on Earth. Uh, this industrial pollution can be looked for by the same telescopes. Yet the mainstream of the astronomy community is not discussing them at all. So I wrote a paper about five years ago talking about searching for industrial pollution. What is the problem? I mean, we are using the same instruments we just have to open our mind to the possibility that industrial pollution exists on exoplanets. And once we do that, if we detect it, that would be beyond any doubt an indication for life because such molecules are so complex that they cannot be produced by natural processes. So here is an example of a techno-signature, a signature that is a marker of technology that would indicate that an industrial civilization exists on a planet. That's one example. You can think of, for example, uh, uh, seeing evidence for photovoltaic cells on the surface of a planet or artificial illumination of the surface of a planet, uh, both subjects on, on which I, I, I wrote the papers. Uh, you can think of megastructures, things that are big, that uh, do not look like planets. You can think about uh, satellites orbiting a planet. Uh, you know, for example, SpaceX is planning to launch tens of thousands of communication satellites in the next uh, few years. And uh, you can imagine that in the distant future, there would be even more. And uh, the question is, can we detect evidence for so many, a swarm of satellites around the planet? So all of these are technological signatures that, you know, we can search for if we only open our mind. And the problem is really when you're not open-minded to find wonderful things, things that you don't expect necessarily, you will never discover them. So it's a catch. Uh, if the mainstream of the astronomy community is bullying and dismissing, even a discussion on the possibility that Oumuamua was artificial or that there are these civilizations out there, if they say it's never aliens, like the, if you go to Twitter, you'll find it a lot of times being said, it's never, don't talk about it. And they, you know, a lot of people ridicule anyone that discusses this. Then, of course, young people will worry about their job prospects. They will never enter this field. You will never have fresh talent working on these subjects. And it will never be funded. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you know, all these no-sayers, they will look at it and say, oh, look, there is nothing being found. Of course there is nothing being found if you don't fund the search. And if you don't allow young people to get into it because of the uh, intellectual climate that suppresses it, then it, there will never be progress. It's just like burying your head in the sand. And my point is that the public is extremely interested in this question. The public is funding science. How dare the scientists say, we have the technology to search for such things, but we don't want to discuss it. I think it's completely inappropriate. If the public is interested and the science community can address this subject, it should be mainstream. And then when you look at the theoretical physics, uh, right now, a huge community of very talented young people work on concepts that have no connection to reality, no experimental verification. They work on extra dimensions. 
They work on string theory. And, you know, many popularizers of science talk about, you know, the frontier of physics is extra dimensions. The frontier of physics is string theory. But these are concepts for which there is no experimental evidence. And they have been working on these for several decades. And my point is, if that is the mainstream for which awards are given, for which you can get a job, then something is distorted in the scientific culture because there is a significant component of the theoretical physics community working on things that the public doesn't really understand, that have no connection to reality because they were never tested, whereas the same mainstream community is dismissing a subject that is of interest to the public and on which we can get data. So how can you have both things at the same time? That makes no sense. Something is unhealthy in the current culture of theoretical physics. And, you know, I am just straightforward in that. I'm saying these things based on what I see. Um, And, of course, that will not be a popular view because all these people that work on these things will, uh, you know, uh, push back. Um, But... But that's the truth. If you ask people, practitioners, you know, they will tell you that's the reality of the, of the situation. And, and this is unfortunate, especially for young people, because you want young people to be independent, to think about things for which you can get data and to be excited about it so that we can make progress. You know, quantum mechanics, a, a central pillar of physics, was never imagined until experiments told us that it exists. So right. what, what, how can we think that we will come up with the correct notion of nature just by, you know, sitting in our offices without any experimental feedback. You know, physics is a dialogue with nature. You have to listen to nature. You have to see what nature tells you. It's a learning experience. Many times you are wrong. So without this feedback, if you make it a monologue where you say what you think nature is, then it's not different from the philosophers that told Galileo, we know that the sun moves around the earth. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can hear the excitement in your voice, Alvi, which is inspiring. I know there are several uh, aspiring astronomers that listen to the show and were really excited that I was having you on because I think they share that same uh, wonder as you do of why you got involved with this and the endless questions that can be asked of the universe. Yeah, um, I, should, I should tell you in this in this context that what I do in the context of the search for life I, is no different than what I, than the approach that I took in the context of studying the universe. For example, most of the matter in the universe is not known. It's called dark matter because we don't know what it is. It's dark. There is no interaction with light. And, you know, there are various possibilities for what, you know, the, the composition of the dark matter is. And over the years, over the decades, people suggested all kinds of possibilities. And many of them were tested, like weakly interacting massive particles. You know, there are very tight constraints on the properties of these particles by now. So hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on experiments that proved that the original notion of weakly interacting massive particles is not correct. Nobody blames those people that suggested it because it's part of science. As I said, science is a learning experience. It should be completely natural to sometimes have the wrong idea, test it experimentally, and show that it's wrong. That is part of science. It's a learning experience. But the point is that 
moving from that, you know, and I wrote like two years ago a paper talking about the dark matter perhaps being made of particles that have a small electric charge. Uh, I found that a speculative idea, but there was no complaint about it. Then when I see anomalies of an object in the sky and I write a paper about these anomalies and try to explain them with one possible explanation, I don't see that any different than saying the dark matter is made of particles that are electrically charged. You know, it's just a, a hypothesis that you can test with getting more evidence. What's the problem? Right. Then I get a backlash of people saying, how dare you discuss it? Now, the only right. reason that I appear in the media as unusual, you know, I get a lot of media attention, you know, is because my colleagues are not sharing my behavior. You know, if everyone was open-minded and if we were to discuss an artificial explanation for Oumuamua naturally, just, you know, one of the possibilities, no problem. What, you know, then it would be just like discussing various possibilities for the dark matter so that the media would not pay too much attention. You know, there is this possibility, another possibility, fine. It's part of science. We rule out, we get more evidence on other, you know, we will collect more data on other objects like Oumuamua and that, we move on. But the fact that there is this pushback makes me unique. And that's why I appear on your show. And (laughs) frankly, I don't understand why I should be unique. But the way I view it, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was in the military Uh, early on and you know when you go into combat uh, they often say that you know one soldier has to put his body on the barbed wire so that other soldiers can go across that and um, you know even though it's painful for me to see the reaction of some people and by the way most of these people that make nasty remarks are not particularly good scientists and I'm I'm not really offended by those because I know that they are not really good scientists and that's why they make the remark because they don't really understand the the subtlety of the the anomalies, you know. Mm -hmm. But at any event, it's a painful experience sometimes and I just feel, you know, I'm putting my body on the barbed wire so that the younger generation of tomorrow will be able to explore this subject freely. That's my thinking. I love that. A trailblazer through and through, man. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. And like I said, there are young people that are going to watch this and listen who I think appreciate and respect that work that you're doing uh, to build off of that as they progress in their own understanding of the universe and fighting back against the norm when it comes to mainstream science. But um, I would love... Just to say, that's the second message of my book. The first message has to do with Oumuamua Mm -hmm. being potentially artificial, but But the second is what I learned in that process of exploring it about the scientific community, which is a rather unhealthy situation right now. And I very much hope we will change. Me too. It's become very stigmatic and I think dogmatic as well. And again, I think that's why you shaking things up is so refreshing, not just for people who believe in UFOs. That's a whole different conversation to be had. But for people who want that wonder and that uh, amazing possibility of there being something else out there. Either we are completely alone in the universe or or we're not. And uh, both answers are equally as terrifying if you if you really look at it. So I, I do I do hope and I hold out that hope with people like you blazing those trails. And um, I do have a few listener questions here. 
Oh, if go you're ahead. willing to Please, stick around, ahead. I'd love to ask you some of these. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, any, any question you want. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's see. You mentioned the the pancake shape of Oumuamua. Now, this question comes from Ian, and um, he wants to know, uh, how did scientists make this analysis? And I guess kind of building off of that question, why didn't we have any images taken from this, whether through wavelengths, uh, radio frequencies, infrared. Um, yeah, can you maybe clarify some of the misconceptions? Yeah. So the, the answer to the second question is, is easier. Let me start with that. Sure. Um, basically, the size of the object can be inferred based on the amount of sunlight that it reflects, if you assume something about the reflectance. Um, and so um, the size is of order, the size of a football field. It's uh, 100 meters, a few hundred feet. And then... Uh, Given that size and distance, you know, the distance is uh, roughly the Earth-Sun separation at the time that it was uh, detected. Um, at that distance, the object occupies a very small angle on the sky that we cannot resolve with existing telescopes on Earth. So it's just, it looks like a point of light. You can't really resolve it. However, if we were to discover it on its way towards us, we could have sent a spacecraft that would meet it halfway and come very close to it so that it's big enough in terms of the angle that it occupies for a camera to take a photograph of it. So you basically need to come close enough to the object so that it's big enough for the camera to resolve it. But we didn't have that luxury in this case. So we don't have a photograph of it. And of course, a photograph would convince us beyond any doubt what the nature of the object is. Uh, and I very much hope that in the future, you know, when we see more objects of this type that look very peculiar, we'll be able to send a mission that will take a photograph from up close. So that's the answer to the second question. The first question, how do we know that it's pancake-shaped and not cigar-shaped? Uh, that's based on a model for the reflected light. So as it was tumbling around, uh, the amount of light that it reflected from the sun changed. And if you try to obtain a fit to the change, the variation in the amount of light that we see as a function of time, the best fit model was one, one that had a flat shape, a pancake-like shape. If you were to take a cigar-like shape, it would not gi give you as good of a fit. And the confidence... Uh, that was inferred is 90%. So at the 90% confidence level, it was flat. There was another argument that was actually in the original discovery paper, which had to do with the fact that a flat object would be more likely to be associated with this uh, with the light curve because it would represent the largest amount of energy that the object gets as it moves through interstellar space. So if, it, if there is a tumultuous uh, journey where it gets kicked around, then uh, based on the way that it tumbled, you can say that it should be pancake-shaped because that represents the most likely state uh, that it would be in given the light curve that we saw. Um, and if it was cigar-shaped, it would be the minimum energy. So if it was cigar-shaped, the, the light curve that we saw would represent an object that was barely kicked around, you know. Mm -hmm. and so that's a separate argument. Uh, so at any event, we don't know for sure, but most likely it was not the way depicted in those cartoons, a cigar-shaped object, but more like a pancake. And 
that is more consistent with the light sail idea. So in fact, when we wrote our first paper with my postdoc, Shmuel Bialy, uh, there are three of the paper. And by the way, the paper was accepted for publication within a few days, which is a record for me. Um, the referee of that paper said, and by the way, uh, it seems like a pancake shape is indeed more likely based on the light curve. So, um, so that's a, another interesting point that uh, um, goes in the direction of the object being unusual because uh, most of the rocks that we see are not really flat. Mm-hmm. That, see, and I'm glad you clarified both those for us because I think the number one question I got is, why? Why didn't we get images of this thing? And, I mean, you explained it plain as day. We, we didn't make it in time. We didn't have enough advanced knowledge. And, I mean, I know there's even companies out there, I believe it's Riga University that I recently researched who are inventing technology to uh, to try to deflect asteroids before they possibly could cause catastrophic events on our planet. So if we're able to know that enough ahead of time and have the, the technology to deflect it, we could feasibly save the planet. Well, so, I mean, uh, time I is say, everything. I should say that the Panstar telescope that discovered Oumuamua, its main purpose is to find these killer asteroids. Those are asteroids that endanger the Earth, that have a size larger than the size of Oumuamua, Mm-hmm. Uh, that if they happen to intercept the Earth, could cause a lot of damage. And Congress, uh, about 16 years ago, decided that astronomers should search for all of these dangerous uh, rocks that can fly. And you know, we know that the dinosaurs died as a result of a giant rock that was much bigger, you know, uh, tens of kilometers in size. Um, uh, and of course, the dinosaurs didn't have astronomers to warn them. They didn't have science, so they just saw this giant rock approaching them, and boom, you know, and uh, <laughs> it must I have been an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it must have been an amazing experience to see this rock getting bigger and bigger and eventually hitting the Earth, you know. But they died as a result, and we came in their place, um, and uh, we have science to warn us in advance with these telescopes like Panstar's Serving the sky, and in three years there would be a much better telescope doing that, uh, called the Vera Rubin Observatory, that will have a survey of the sky called LSST, aimed at finding things. That survey could find Oumuamua-like objects every month. So my point is, in a few years, we could have many of those discovered, and then study them in detail. We don't need to wait very long. We just need to collect the evidence. And, you know, unless we decide to bury our head in the sand again and say, we don't care about these objects because we know what they are, you know. So um, altogether, I see a lot of prospects for making progress uh, in this context. And it's just a new way of searching for civilizations that was never used before, um, not based on radio signals or looking with telescopes at other stars, you know, just searching our backyard for objects that came along. Yeah, right. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people know the very visible work of SETI using uh, radio, you know, signals to try to find life when there's literally a million other ways we could be searching. So right. I think and, 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 you know, we, we sent out Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons. We are sending space junk. 
And so, you know, it's quite natural to imagine there being objects in space that were sent by other civilizations. And, you know, currently all our eggs are in one basket here on Earth. Yeah. Uh, everything we care about is here. And if something catastrophic happens, we will lose everything we care about. And I wrote actually a, a, an essay to Scientific American recently talking about Noah's spaceship, which uh, relates to the, the biblical story uh, in the Old Testament that talks about Noah, uh, who uh, was worried about the, the great flood killing all the animals. So he uh, built an ark. And by the way, this, the dimensions of the ark are given explicitly in the Bible. <laughs> They're not very different from the dimensions of Oumuamua, I should say, by chance. Uh, but uh, the story goes that he put animals in the ark and saved them from the great flood. So we can have a similar concept, saving life on Earth from a catastrophe uh, by sending out a spaceship. Now, that doesn't mean that the spaceship needs to be huge. Uh, so that you can dock uh, elephants and whales and birds. Um, actually, all you need to know is the DNA of those animals, put it on a computer, all this information, and have a 3D printer, and just go to other places and reproduce life synthetically uh, out of the knowledge that we have uh, about the DNA of uh, all forms of life on Earth. And so, in principle, you can send a CubeSat. It doesn't need to be a giant arc, you know, a giant spaceship. It could be a small thing that goes to a, a, another planet and reproduces what we care about here on Earth. Right. We, we've come a long way from uh, gold disks, right, and sending those out. I think uh, we're making progress, for By sure. By the way, uh, about making progress, you know, there is this uh, question... Could humans survive in space or, or could humans adapt to a habitat that floats in space? Well, you know, humans uh, adapted from the environment of Africa to an apartment building in Manhattan. It's a very different environment. Only, only over 100,000 years. Within 100,000 years, instead of being in the jungle, you know, you find people living comfortably, well, until the pandemic, in an apartment building. Yeah. So uh, the leap of living in space may not be much bigger. Yeah, if I can attest to that, living right now in New York City uh, <laughs> during a lockdown uh, with the train outside my window, I will take space any day over that, Avi, for sure. <laughs> um, all right, well, I guess I got two more listener questions, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, do you acknowledge any probability of our our bombs that we set off, you know, in the forties and whatnot, was this some sort of beacon? If there is an intelligence out there of acknowledging us and uh, kind of like Oumuamua says, scout us out and, and well, monitor that's, what uh, we do. that's one possible signal that we can look for. But, mm -hmm. but uh, I would say, you know, like signals of, of radiation, uh, like mm -hmm. radio waves. We've been transmitting for a century radio waves. And uh, that means that for a hundred years, this there is a sphere of radio waves that went a hundred light years away. And if there is any civilization within a hundred light years that has radio telescopes like we have, they will know about our existence. I actually did this calculation, and with our technology, it's possible to tell 
that we exist out to a distance of tens of light years. Of course, it will take a lot of time for us to hear back, uh, but it's already possible that we were careless, that we were not careful enough not to announce that we exist. And the reason I say that is I think it's much more prudent, much smarter to be quiet and listen first before speaking out. Because you never know what the risks are out there. And we were not careful. Once again, a sign of us not being very intelligent. <laughs> so um, who knows? Yeah. Maybe there are some predators out there and we will hear from them at some point. Yep. Yep. I think if everyone just listened a little more, uh, our world would be better off and hopefully the many universes out there as well. Avi. But um, last listener question here comes from Mike on Twitter. He wants to know, what is your favorite episode of Star Trek? Any incarnation. Do you have an answer for that? Yeah. Well, um, unfortunately, you know, I don't like science fiction uh, because uh, uh, in uh, books of science, many of the books or films on science fiction, the laws of physics are violated. And I <laughs> just cannot, I cannot enjoy it. Uh, when I see something that makes no sense to me as a physicist, I just give up. You know, I, I, I don't follow the plot. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. So um, I don't like uh, science fiction, actually. I, I enjoy science and I enjoy fiction. But, uh, I, well, there are some exceptions, I should say. There are some very good films that are not far from being scientifically accurate, but they're mm. all minority. Yeah, they they truly are. I know what you mean. I'm the same. I, uh, I'm a playwright here in New York City. And uh, there's many times I go see a play and I can't enjoy it because I'm too busy and my mind is reeling about the dialogue being terrible or the, the structure of the play not being right. So I right. completely understand. I'm also a Star Wars guy, so um, no subject <laughs> for me. Um, but in closing, Avi, I'd love to ask, um, you know, the book covers more than just Oumuamua. I want to make that very clear to the audience. Um, you were kind enough to give me an advanced copy to look over. And I was I was amazed at how it started with that and just moved into many directions. So besides Oumuamua, what, what do you hope that readers will take away from the book uh, except just about this one interstellar object that could be alien? What, what right. else did you really want to say with the book? So it's really interesting that thinking about alien life teaches us about ourselves. And, you know, the way we behave right now, not, not even considering that possibility within the mainstream of science, uh, tells you something. It tells you why, you know, we don't behave uh, in, 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 in a more uh, collegial way and we don't cooperate as much. And, you know, I give the example in the book of the amount of money that was invested in the Second World War uh, that could have been used for science. And in fact, Churchill wrote a paper just before the war started in which he discussed the possibility of life around other stars. But he became the prime minister and uh, didn't really pursue uh, this, this uh, interest of his. Instead, he had to worry about, you know, fighting the Germans that were killing a lot of the people in England. And so there were a huge amount of resources dedicated to 
a destructive purpose, and if instead it was dedicated to Church's vision of searching for life around other stars, we would perhaps know by now the answer, whether we are alone or not. So my point is, with a better perspective, you know, we can make much more progress as uh, humans, you know, as science. And I really wish that uh, more people will accept that and that we can all work together towards a better future and not pretend that we know the answer in advance and not fight each other. Let's just try to figure things out together, you know, just as if we are kids trying to learn about the world. And uh, I should say that the one thing that surprises me about the book at this point in time is that it's, not, it's ranked number one on Amazon in the astronomy section three weeks before publication without any reviews. Right. So that I'm really surprised awesome. by that because it means that there is, as you, as you alluded to, there is hunger or interest in this subject. And partly it's because the scientific community is starving the public on, you know, intentionally suppressing any discussion that is open on these issues. And I'm trying to break this barrier in the book. So I very much hope that people will enjoy it. Abby, I mean, thank you for feeding us. That's, the, that's really all I can say. As one of those hungry people, I'm glad that there's someone out, someone out there thinking of us, thinking of humanity over uh, military, over mainstream perception of science and uh, really shaking things up, man. You are a rebel. And, uh, you know, as someone who grew up on punk music, uh, th- those are the people I respect. So tell us where we can get the book and please tell us where we can find everything you're up to. Well, you can find the book in any outlet that sells books, uh, for example, on Amazon. Uh, it's already out for sale, and uh, it will come out in three weeks, uh, on uh, January 26, 2021, in the U.S., and then uh, it will be published in more than 20 countries worldwide. Oh, wow. And I should say, uh, over the past couple of days, I had... Um, you know, a few filmmakers from Hollywood contact me uh, and I told my literary agent that if it ever becomes a film, uh, I want Brad Pitt to play my role. <laughs> I can see it, man. Hey, he's done Interstellar before. I'm sure he'll do it again. I could see it. I could definitely see it. Well, those uh, I know after the book comes out, those phone calls are going to keep coming, man. So Thank you for all the work you've done, all the work you will continue to do. Again, the book is called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Avi, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you for having me.
Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.